0: Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week I'm joined in the week of John le Carré's death by one of his oldest friends, Nicholas Shakespeare, the novelist whose most recent book is The Sandpit, a spy story of which I think le Carré would have approved. Nicholas, what do you think needs to be said about le Carré now that hasn't been said in the flood of outpourings that have come out around his death?
1: Well, I think in the flash flood of outpourings, almost everything's been said. Probably what can't be said often enough is how he was our kind of senior figure in literature for the last 30 years. I remember when speaking to Graham Greene, about whom I would often talk with Le Carre, I asked Graham Greene what he felt when Evelyn Waugh died, and Greene said he felt as if his commanding officer was dead. And certainly, Le Carré felt that about Graham Greene. And he had described Greene as carrying virtually alone the torch of English literature. And he himself, I felt, replaced Greene. When, when Greene died, it was inevitable that Le Carré just dovetailed into that position. And many of Le Carré's books, *Taylor of Panama, are homages to Greene. Green himself had said that The Spy Who Came from the Cold was one of the best novels he'd ever read. And I think, for me, what hasn't possibly been said enough is how much Le Carre is like Green and behaved towards those under him like Green. I mean, for me, David's death, my commanding officer has died. And so many of the qualities he admired in Green, he embodied in his own works. There was the primacy of storytelling. He he loved Green for what he called the search for moral values coupled with an adventure story, and he always made the adventure story in the tradition of Buchan and Somerset Maugham and Green a kind of primary priority. Then there was his engagement with the wider world outside England. For him, it was Germany, a bit like Green and Bright and Rock. You could open any one of David Conwell's novels and bite it, and all the way down would be Germany. In fact, <laughs> the last public appearance he made was at the German embassy just two or three days before lockdown, and he asked me to chair him there, and it was an amazing event. There were 300 people packed into the German, I mean, unthinkable now. I mean, it really was a another world, another time, and the applause at the end went on and on as if there was a spidery sense this was going to be David's last outing. And he he was on absolutely incinerating form about Brexit, about literature, but above all about Germany. And then I feel he had this fascination, like Green, with the individual struggle in that world outside our shores, to retain the individual's humanity in a world that was hell-bent on dismantling it. So however much you, one tries to say that he's the great king of the espionage writers, I, I felt always actually the stories were kind of John Bach and Robert Lewis Stevenson stories which use espionage to get the character out into the world and to be challenged by that world and to try and keep a moral compass. And what he did, like a bit like Graham Green, finally he he kind of distilled all these, these qualities into a, a recognizable fictional habitat. I mean, you only, it's been said often enough, you only have to quote two or three lines of Le Carrier and you know that you're in not Greenland, but Le Carrier land Um, Green had the luxury of God, and David Cornwall didn't. He 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 had in place of God an abusive parent who presided over a deformed childhood. I remember on our last meeting, hearing him again recapitulate about his childhood. I said, I, I, I'm quite surprised you survived it. And he said, well, quite frankly, so am I. And his mother, he said, had buggered off, leaving him totally with with an absence of maternal feelings towards her. And he suspected she had no maternal feelings towards him. And his father, he described him as quite a bad man. Everything about him was fake. My, my own father, who was a great friend of David Cornwall's at Oxford, remembers Ronnie Cornwall coming to the Canning Club and disgracing Hugh Trevor Roper there and having to be carted off in a, in a Rolls Royce or a Bentley that he didn't belong to him. Disgracing he, Hugh Trevor Roper? Yes, Trevor Roper was giving a, a talk, and I think Ronnie Cornwall sitting in the front row heckled him to everyone's embarrassment. And everything about Ronnie was fake. I mean, even his box at Ascot was fake. And so... David told me that twice he'd had to get his own father out of jail. One was in Jakarta when he was had up for arms dealing. And the other time was in Berlin when he'd come to deal with the Stasi. David discovered this late in life that his father was, was actually involved with the Stasi. And so this, when you have a father like that, and he's at private school, Sherburn, he has this terrible dichotomy from early on as to be whether he's going to be loyal to the school or loyal to what his father's telling him. And there's a wonderful line in an underrated novel of his, A Small Town in Germany. There's a character called Alan Turner, and David agreed that like Alan Turner, I have set one part of my nature in pursuit of the other. And this can be seen at Oxford where he's, he doesn't, when he's at Lincoln College, in a debate, he takes the side of Hitler and, and argues for all Hitler's good points. He's a member at Oxford of the Communist Party, but also of the Gridiron Club, which is like the bullying. And I think this duality created a tension that became a very necessary drug for him. And you can see it in George Smiley. I've learned to interpret the whole of life in terms of conspiracy. So the green god becomes, in David's world, not religious, but of course the Cold War setting with good and bad, treading each other, not in obvious Manichaean ways. And he got very rattled when I started to talk to him about Ian Fleming, and because it seemed to me that there were great similarities with them, that in the, in the sense David Cornwall's world had been created in contrast to Ian Fleming's world. But I pointed out to him that both characters had left their private school early, in David's case, Sherborne, in Ian Fleming's case, Eton. They'd both gone to Austria and to Switzerland and learned German, and they'd both become great skiing champions. I mean, David Cornwall was considered for the 1952 Vengen Winter Olympics. They had both joined the intelligence services. They'd both married as their first marriage, a woman called Anne. They'd both written their breakthrough novel <laughs> in under two months. I think David Cornwall wrote The Spy in of the Cold in five weeks, and Ian Fleming wrote Casino Royale in two months. I used to chide him that maybe Le Carré, he, he, he would talk about how he invented this pseudonym, Le Carré. I mean, various stories, each one different, how he saw the name from the top of a bar, so blah, blah, blah. And I was reading Casino Royale the other day, and you have Le Chief, the first Bond villain, and Le Chiffre means the cipher. And then I saw that in the casinos, Chief, Carré is also, Carré is a call at the gambling table. So I, I I planted this, and I think in our last email correspondence, I dangled it in front of him, say, could you have got LaCare from the And he wouldn't respond. But there was, and also then, quite quite the competitive spirit in David was that he obviously wanted Smiley to be more famous than possibly James Bond, and I I I I couldn't. Forbear from pointing out to him that he'd also, they'd used Sean Connery, it, it, both, both writers, they'd used Pierce Brosnan, they'd used Paul Dane, who was the screenwriter for Goldfinger, who'd been the screenwriter for the Spy Who Came In From The Cold. And then he told me that he'd just been finished doing a rewrite, adaptation of The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which I hope we're going to see, and this is probably his last work. For Netflix, I think it's a six-parter, and he was trying to get, of all people, to play the part of Alec Lemus' Daniel Craig. So I felt, <laughs> that despite the fact he despised Fleming and despised Bond, I don't think he'd read... He did despise Fleming, Fleming did he? Was he snooty about Fleming? He said, know, he, I don't think he'd ever met Fleming, but he despised Bond, and he'd only read, he said to me, a couple of Bonds, but I think he despised the idea that Fleming had glamorised the service and had not pointed out all the cynicism and the drabness of it. Fleming's Bond was a kind of womanising, attractive man who saved the country. George Smiley is a cuckolded... He's almost written to be directly the opposite. He's a cuckolded intellectual who is rather ugly and middle-aged. But I suppose where they do differ... Significantly, is in their villains because the, the closer you get to a a Bond villain, the more grotesque he becomes. The closer you get to a, a Le Carre villain, the more they shrink into the heroes who are going to vanquish them. I mean, famously, in Carla, who you know, when Carla finally is brought over to the West by Smiley. There's a description of him as a kind of little old man with a backpack, like a poor man going to a funeral. So, so Carla is not like Mr. Big or, or Drax or, the great Doctor No. Nothing like the Fleming villains. The LeCarre villains are like the very people who hunt them. Yeah. And. I think in that way he differentiates himself and in others. I mean, I think, you know, completely the, the literary achievement of Le Carré's novels is something that Fleming never achieved or possibly aspired to. But I, I think it was a healthy conversation to have with him, even if it roused him a bit.
0: <laughs> the question of that, the, the literary achievement, because there's a sort of, you know, boilerplate phrase in all the obituaries saying, you know, a writer of literary spy thrillers, a literary espionage writer. How much do you think he did to collapse the distinction between literary fiction and so-called genre fiction? And do you think he minded very much about that?
1: I feel personally he did. You know, he wasn't, in the end, Graham Greene, who did that. One of the long-running conversations we would have about Greene, who I admired for not being restrained by genre, I mean, Green could go off and do Travels of My Art, or he could do Monsignor Quixote. He could also do Our Man in Havana. He could do The Power and the Glory or The Heart of the Matter, especially which had kind of intelligence aspects to it. But he was never constrained by it. And one of the novels I most admired of David Cornwall's was The Naive and Sentimental Lover, which seemed to me to show how great he really could be because it kind of foamed, it overspilled with passion, emotion, love, messily. But in doing that, it achieved a level and explored a region that when the novel failed in his terms, both in terms of success of sales and critically, he never dared to poke his nose again outside the genre well, I mean, he, he, he told me that, you know, he, he realized then that he, his talents were best suited to being explored within the espionage novel. And then he produced probably his greatest book, A Perfect Spy. So I, I would argue that in most cases, I think the espionage novel, he did kind of push the boundaries, but in not being able to escape it, I wonder if he also didn't finally allow himself to be the kind of absolutely kind of prowl with Graham Greene. Was he sensitive to criticism? I mean, one of the things that, you know, is
0: always brought up with him is he refused to let his name go forward for Booker on principle.
1: Yes, but he didn't really understand that, that it wasn't up to him. The Booker Prize judges could call it in his yes. book without him having to... I, I pointed this out occasionally, not, not to great, <laughs> great kind of benefit, but I think it was part of his controlling... He was very successful at controlling his own image, and it was an image that was an absolutely sustained image. I mean, think of, can you think of anybody else who for 60 years is writing bestsellers right up until the end? I mean, Graham Greene faded in his last years. His last few books weren't really up to anything like David's last few books. Of course, David's last novels weren't of the same ilk as A Perfect Spy and Tinker Taylor a Spy, but they were still pretty good. That image, you know, you had a very long personal friendship with him. Did you get to see beneath it? What was weird is that so many people said to me, oh, you're one of his best friends. And this kind of flattered me, but also puzzled me, because although when over 20 years, I suppose, he would... I mean, I owed him a lot, because at a critical moment in my life, when I had the job that you had as literary editor of The Telegraph, I had published... A novel set in South America, you know, with the terrorism at its background. Is
0: this a vision of Ellen Sives?
1: This is a vision of Ellen Sives, and, and this had won, like David, it had won the Somerset Mall Prize, and I, I wanted to write full time, but I didn't have any money and I didn't have the confidence whether I could do it. I, I had a lovely job, you know how wonderful that job is as literary editor, but I wanted to do something more than that. And I wasn't married or had, I didn't have kind of family commitments. And David read the book and said, I think you could do it. And if you decide to do it, I will let you use my, there was a long barn in Tregyphian, his house in Cornwall. He had about 300 yards from his house. He said, I'll let you use that to write. And that was an amazingly generous gift. And it it gave me the courage finally to, decided I wanted to leave the telegraph and write full time and so for the next four or five books I would go down I would spend two or three weeks a time and we would go we would walk during the day we'd write the rest of it and then we'd meet in the evening for dinner which would often last till one in the morning and he would we were kind of completely candid with each other in as much as I suspect he was capable of being candid I never felt I felt I got to know him as much as he would allow anyone to get to know him but I wasn't quite sure how much that was and also how much he knew himself I mean Bob Gottlieb has, has, has a marvellous line about however you know intelligent you are about David he's always got there before you and I think he's, he was so ferociously intelligent and sharp that he almost ran circles around himself in kind of peering at himself and so a bit like the Tazzy devil, Taz. He, he's so quick that I wondered sometimes if he was able to penetrate what made him tick. Clearly his childhood, the, the, this terrible childhood with abandoned by your mother and then you're, and betrayed by your father made him very untrustworthy of everybody. And it made him untrustworthy I think of himself. So he was a brilliant actor. He was a fantastically charming person. I mean, I, I remember, Somebody used the phrase about Bruce Chatwin that he was out to seduce, but it didn't matter whether you were a tea cozy or an ocelot, he was out to seduce you. And I felt David had exactly the same warmth and, and attraction and capacity to seduce everybody in whose orbit he came. And it must have exhausted him because he was followed by people who fell completely in love with him and then were slightly surprised when he didn't turn their calls. I mean, I in the course of the next 20 years, I would come across, you know, practically still weeping girlfriends of his who, who had letters from him and felt that he was still their great love when he hadn't been in touch. And when they tried to get hold of him, there was no telephone number and the, the address never returned the letters. So I suspect that was repeated throughout his life with friends, male and female, who he beguiled, and attracted and enchanted and then couldn't face the follow-up.
0: Were you sort of, you know, taking notes when you spoke to him? Did he think, you know, Nicholas is going to write about me?
1: Well, I I met somebody from Time Out once who said, oh, David Cornwall's worried about you. He thinks thinks you're spying on him. (laughs) And, no, I mean, sometimes I'd take notes because it had been so funny and he would say things that I realised he hadn't said. To other people, but not that I was following. I mean, I wasn't. I wasn't intending to kind of to kind of write things down. But he was so articulate, as anybody who met. He was so kind of funny. He was so wise. I mean, he's one of the funniest people I've ever. His ability to mimic, which again he shared with Bruce Chapman and apparently Flaubert, was second to none. I mean, you'd be on the floor just with your eyes streaming with water at his his amused takes on people. And so sometimes they were so rich and vivid that I did write down. I mean, I haven't looked at what I've written down, but I've got kind of 20 or 30 years of probably (laughs) diary entries, which I would like one day probably to look at and see, remind myself of some of the details he told me. For me, he was just the most wonderful mentor as a writer, because he, I could see that he was quite prepared to rip up 300 pages, 18 months' work, if it didn't work. And his vigilance for the wrong word or the right word, he would have these sentences that would have to go into the novel, which he would pin up on his wall. And, you know, he was at his desk. He worked very, very hard. He didn't allow the outside world in while he was writing. He was totally committed to the story. All this for a young writer was absolutely marvelous and something I would attempt to do today with my own work. It's quite difficult to keep up with David as it was on his walks, but you know, he was an inspirer and very, very generous to a, a younger generation. One of the things that did puzzle me for a writer is that he wasn't, he, he wasn't particularly interested in other people's novels. So that when I said, oh, I just read this fantastic novel by, say, Javi Maria's and Berta which includes Oxford and the Secret Service, and it's one of the best novels I've read recently, he kind of wrote it down dutifully, but kind of, I, I knew he was never going to read it. And I was puzzled often when we, I was down at Trigithian to see that it was almost as if he felt other novelists might threaten his own... I called it his fictional habitat, his his language. He was so clear and confident about his own narrative world, what he wanted to write in the characters, that I think he probably didn't want to look too much at other fiction writers in case he, like flypaper, might absorb them. I know that Fleming, whenever he was writing his own novels, couldn't read another novel by a novelist, which I'm sure is common with lots of writers. I was
0: going to say, you will not review fiction while you're writing your own work generally is that something you get from him
1: I won't review fiction at all because I think it's so difficult to write well about fiction a but I, I was the fiction reviewer for the times for many years and I remember when Anthony Pohl became my lead fiction review or no my lead reviewer at the Daily Telegraph I tried to get him to do occasional fiction reviews like you know when Salman Rushdie had Midnight's Children I would be wonderful if you'd had Anthony Powell on this, but he said he would refuse to do fiction. And he said that my reviewing fiction for the Times for five years, he said he would have preferred to have been on Devil's Island. (laughs) And that phrase kind of rang with me. So as soon as I didn't have to review fiction, I stopped reviewing. I think the last novel I reviewed was Love in the Time of Cholera by Garcia Marquez. Another novelist, David, absolutely adored Marquez. And so we would have... I think at the time David was alive, Marquez was incontestably the world writer. When Marquez died, that crown may have passed in a strange way to David, but there isn't anybody now who I would say has that unambiguous and incontestable kind of allure for other writers. I mean, when Marquez was alive, everybody just said, you know, he's the caper's knickers, he's the number one. It's like when Robert Frost died,
0: John Berryman saying, you know, who's number one, who's number one? (laughs) And I think he said, damn,
1: Cal is number one. (laughs) Yes, I mean, writers are so competitive, and David was about as competitive as you can get. He made the most, I think one thing that gave him such pride was this Olaf Palm Award. He was very keen that I kind of saw his speech which he gave it, which is available on YouTube, and it's a terrific speech. I mean, absolutely, David, on top form, attacking Brexit, attacking pusillanimity of politicians, and emphasising the moral integrity and the moral battle that is, you know, obliged to all writers and individuals. And it's a terrific speech. He was a very good talker. And I think that prize gave him more more pleasure probably than any of his other prizes because it was a kind of acknowledgement of a political contribution rather than a literary one. I think he would have liked the Nobel Prize. I remember once going for a walk with him on the clifftops at Trigliffion and he saw Jane, his wonderful wife, coming back towards him and he said to me, whenever I see Jane coming towards me I think she's coming to tell me I've won the Nobel Prize. And then there was the occasion when he was with Harold Brodke in an Indian restaurant in London. This is a lovely story. And um, suddenly, Harold Brodke is summoned by the the waiter in the Indian restaurant. There's a telephone call for him. And he goes to the telephone call, and it's his wife, and says, Harold, Harold, you've won the Nobel Prize. So David's there and congratulates him as the first person to be able to congratulate him. And Brodke grins and then hugs him in a great bear hug. And he says, now I can be frivolous.
0: <laughs> I imagine Le Carre also slightly put out by this as well. Maybe. <laughs> I just thought, well, maybe next time. <laughs> this business of him being quite... You say, you know, he very, was very controlling of his image. And he did famously see off two or three biographers really quite aggressively, didn't he? I remember being
1: with him when... Graham Lord from the Daily Express, who was a literator of the Daily Express, suddenly decided he'd like to write David's biography. And I will never forget the pain and the distress that this was causing him. I saw it again with Martha Gellhorn, when somebody was trying to do her biography unauthorised. And Graham Greene has this phrase he used that, you know, everyone has a copyright on their own life. And I think David felt at that moment that the copyright on his life was being vandalised, and that he would have no control over what Graham Lord chose to write about. I know that I think Robert Harris for a time was going to be writing David's biography, and then it all finally went to Adam Sisman, who did a marvellous biography, but under, I think, quite difficult constraints, although it it was kind of semi-authorised. So I, I suspect David left a few skunk smells on the trail that he wasn't allowed to kind of stray into.
0: But then he did also do something slightly odd, which was almost immediately Adam had published his book, David Put the Pigeon Tunnel Out, rather abruptly, which looks a bit like
1: a spoiler. I thought that was a, a very David Cornwall reaction. But when you read The Pigeon Tunnel, which is a fantastic book, but it's complete fiction to me. I mean, it, it, it masquerades as elements from his life, but they're fairly carefully chosen and honed. And they're all marvellously a necklace of wonderful glittering stories that make put David in the light he wanted to be put into. And so I saw it as his way of controlling his own image. And but not really, funny enough, in competition with Adam Systems, Or well, I know Adam was slightly worried about it when it came out, but I don't think it was in any competition at all. It was a kind of rather nice kind of garnish to it, because it didn't really reveal anything about David at all.
0: <laughs> why do you think he was so I mean, what what do you think he was protecting? Why why do you feel he was so anxious? to tell, you know, stories about himself which weren't always true?
1: It's difficult. I'm not a psychiatrist. I mean, I, I do think it probably owes a lot to his childhood. I know that he was probably conflicted in some of the things that he had to do as an intelligence officer. I know that my father found it rather riveting to discover in Adam's biography that when my father was at Oxford with David, and a great friend of David, one of his best friends, that David had been spying on them all. And at this German embassy evening in March, absolutely fantastic, I, I was able to bring my father down to the events. And the first question at the end of the talk, my father put up his hand and said, David, I was one of your best friends at Oxford. You were the funniest person I knew. I've now since discovered that you were spying on us. Did you spy on me? (laughs) And David actually, for the first time, he was rather lame in his automatic reply, which was, if only. But he was clearly uncomfortable. And I felt rather sorry for him that he couldn't, right at the end of his life, not in such a public forum, actually be quite candid about what he'd done. He still felt probably unable to talk about what he'd done. I mean, I'm researching a biography of Ian Fleming at the moment. And one of the things I'm discovering is how much more important Fleming was in the intelligence service. I mean, Fleming was in the inner sector, whereas David was a very lowly, unimportant spy. And I wonder if also the kind of the brouhaha about him having been intelligence, etc. It, be- it became so part of his public image that you probably he probably didn't dare dismantle it to tell exactly how small a part he had played in the service. Fleming, on the other hand, played such a big part, but kind of minimalized it. And so James Bond became a kind of vehicle for people to imagine what they liked, but he never himself talked about what he did. So I know that secrecy amongst intelligence agents runs deep and you know, many of the people I've interviewed, you know, they died with their secrets on their lips. So secrecy was an essential element of David's makeup, partly because of his childhood, the secret he'd had to keep about his father, partly because of the profession he chose to join. And also partly it's the writer's temperament. He does a rather interesting interview on YouTube with Malcolm Mugridge, David does in 1965. And he talks about the spy and the novelist being, in obvious ways, quite similar. And in fact, many of David Cornwall's intelligence officers and intelligence antecedents, you know, Maxwell Knight, John Bingham, all these people that were also novelists. And there's a kind of absolute pathway from intelligence into novel writing from Somerset Maugham, Compton Mackenzie, Graham Greene onwards. So there is a natural affinity between the writer and the spy and the writer and the spy novel. But he says in this Muggeridge interview that he doesn't want to reveal, it's all an illusionist's trade, and you don't want to reveal too many tricks of the illusionists because in the end, it's just one person at a desk sitting alone and creating this world. And if you if you were to inspect it too much, it would all probably dis- disintegrate. So I suspect that the the secrecy came about from a combination of factors.
0: There's also a question of,
1: I mean, people talk a lot
0: about the moral murk of Le Carré's world, about the idea that, as you say, you know, Carla and Smiley are not that far apart. But I was interested, he very much, I mean, he was very annoyed when Rod Little of this parish claimed in a Sunday Times interview that that he told him he, he came close to defecting. What was his attitude to sort of patriotism? I mean, he did, he did sort of care about England. You know, there, there was a moral compass in there, wasn't there? A, a patriotic compass. It,
1: it's strange. I mean, his patriotism is a strange thing. His great spat with Graham Greene came about, which they made up, but it came about over an argument about Philby, who had been a friend of Greene's. David never met Philby, but was, in a sense, inspired by him to write you know, George Smiley's enemy is kind of Philby, so to speak. Sir Green felt that you betray your country before you betray your friend. David took the moral ground that you don't betray your country. Clearly, he'd betrayed his friends at Oxford, so he was capable of that. As he said to me, you know, someone has to clean out the drains, is how he, he described it. But I remember in our last lunch we had back in February, you know, he was talking about Boris as equivalent of Philby, betraying the country. And I said, would you betray your country? And he said, in answer to your question, I'd leave. I have an Irish passport. He'd found his maternal grandmother, called O'Cornwall, I think, <laughs> on his father's side. had come from near Cork." And not only that, but he found an address for her in England near Truro, which is near where he ended up. And he'd managed, he was doing great efforts to get an Irish passport for himself. So that was his, that was going to be his answer. He wasn't going to betray England, but he might leave England. I think John Banville I saw in the Guardian a couple of days ago saying that, you know, if he had gone to live in Ireland, he'd have probably got very nostalgic for Britain and left back soon for, for England. But I thought that was an interesting response. He he was quite critical of Graham Greene burnishing his image in the south of France towards the end of his life. So I felt he felt that Greene had had left the ship.
0: Green Green made that distinction, didn't he, between his literary novels and his entertainments? Was Green the example that allowed Le Carre not to need to do that?
1: Yes, I think that's a very good point. I think he didn't have to think of himself in terms of a genre writer and I don't think he liked to think of himself in terms of a genre writer. Green had done the work. Green had enabled him to write what he liked and if that was espionage it was going to be absolutely fine. He didn't have to treat himself as a genre writer but as I again repeat I found it interesting that when he did try and escape from it once with the naive and sentimental lover the effect scalded him back into never attempting that again. And that's where he and Green differ. Green would not have found failure a problem. He'd have found failure, as I think he said, failure is just success postponed. I think for David he was always afraid that success was failure postponed. And he tasted it once, so he didn't want to taste it again. I think failure for David was not an option. And I think that ironically, impeded him from succeeding in being the possibly Nobel-winning writer he could have. Well, they
0: can't give it posthumously, unfortunately. Nicholas Shakespeare, thanks very much indeed for your time. Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk voucher.